I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Arthur Drozd. He is the manager director of real estate investment firm SDS Realty Corp and founder of commercial lending aggregator Rendy Lend Go. Arthur, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Brian. Awesome. I want to start with your experience and your background. You grew up in the Soviet Union. Correct. And we'll get into commercial real estate and how this background impacts your journey as an entrepreneur and how you're allocating capital and how you think about investing and why you like real estate. But if you could take us back, what was your childhood like? Okay. Yeah. So I was born in the suburb of Moscow, a town called now called Karolov. It was named after a founder of a Soviet space program. And Sergei Karolov, you probably aware, was one of the pioneers of the space industry. So there's a little town, 200,000 people on the outskirts of Moscow, about seven miles outside of Moscow proper, that's filled with engineers and companies and used to be a defense contractors, state defense contractors, obviously, that all specialized in space industry. My father was a rocket engineer and worked on one of the rocket factories, then later worked uh, for a uh, satellite outfit that was spying on America during the Cold War. So my first job was at the plant that built ballistic missiles, the SS-20 ballistic missiles. So that's now my background is in Soviet Union. I grew up there and went to uh, Moscow State University for television and journalism. Very quickly got dissolution that learning about free press in a communist country was not the best way to go. And when I left uh, Soviet Union after serving in the military in the Soviet Union, right around 
1992, I already understood that where my priorities would be once I come to the West, because the country at the time in 1992 was really quickly disintegrating and inflation was rampant, corruption was rampant. So the country fell apart after Soviet Union collapsed much faster than anybody thought it would. So for some of our listeners who aren't aware, Moscow State University was, is considered the best school in the Soviet Union and in Russia today. What led you into media, considering your dad's work and famously, the Soviets were constantly pushing people to go into science and engineering and, and I'm more not, of the math focus? Yeah, on. I'm not a technical person. And that's the thing about that. I'm more into history and literature and humanitarian sciences, but not uh, technical sciences. So my father really quickly realized that and said, look, you're not going to do well with that. So my sister went in, into Moscow State University for journalism program. And he said, maybe you should look into that. And once I did, that was my first money that I made. I wrote a little article in the local newspaper and it got published. And I got a, a notification in the mail for a, like you know, one ruble and 53 kopecks that they're going to pay me. I'm like, seriously? Somebody going to pay you for this? I just wrote like, you know, six sentences, you know, and they pay you three copies per word. It's that they pay you for this. So I kind of got hooked on that and went to a journalism school and then to Moscow State. What was the experience like in a communist country going to a journalism media school? It seems inherently contradictory. Totally. Yeah. But you don't know that when you are born with it. I was, you know, I grew up being a brainwashed communist. So I was a ideological leader of my class in my high school. And I was, you know, doing the making newspapers for wall newspapers, we call them, right? So I had a, a news aggregator that would read to everybody every Monday at 8 a.m. to the whole class you know, so that how the capitalist uh, society is failing and the socialist, uh, socialism and advancing everywhere. So I was that kind of guy, right? So, and my first job out of high school was in a local paper. And it's a you know, four-page paper. I was on the last page, a fourth page. And I was in charge of the chess, ports, obituaries, and some small news, like, you know, anything that was nothing significant, really. So I thought, like, you know what? It's 1987. It's perestroika time. So maybe they're open for talking about something else. So I dug up the same paper from 50 years ago, from 1937, slides and of this paper from, from Stalin's time. 1937, that's a time when a big purge, right? So you probably learned that in America as being really the bloodiest time in Russia. And I looked through the headlines of the same paper 50 years ago, and I told my editor, look, why don't we just publish that? Because it would be great for people to know that this is what the country was going through. There were, there were trials of its own citizens. There were, there were people that being prosecuted. So why don't we bring this up? It was on the headlines of the same newspaper. All we need to do is just republish it. No comments. And she said, absolutely no, because the trade unions and the censorship will say absolutely no to this and I'll lose my job. So one day she was not there and I thought I could do this. And I put something together, a small article that says headlines from the past 50 years ago, same paper. And I submitted it and, uh, it went to the censors. And the next day, 
she was heavily pregnant that she wasn't in the office a lot. That was the reason I, I tried to sneak it by. And, and the next day I get a call that she's in the office already at 8 a.m. So get to the office really quick. So I get there and she tells me, look, if you don't want to get fired and you don't want me to get fired, don't ever do this again. Because it came back from a censor committee and your paper is published on Thursday. By, by Wednesday afternoon, you have to submit whatever you're going to publish to the censors at the time. And it came to them. They highlighted it as a red flag, called her boss, and she got in heavy trouble. So even after 50 years after Perestroika, time when everybody is free press, you know, let's talk about everything. There's no no stone unturned. Let's talk about our history. And even then, they were not ready to talk about it. And that was the simplest test for me. So after that, my trust in a free press went down significantly. A couple of years into that in the military, I, I realized truly that it was Soviet Union is a colossus that is going to collapse very soon. And when it does, it's going to be a big problem. Sure enough, a year later, there was attempted coup d'etat in August 1991, if you remember, and then failed. Communists couldn't retake power and the Soviet Union collapsed very fast. What made you think, I guess, late 80s, that the writing was on the wall? that the, the Soviet Union was no longer a viable option moving forward. Yeah, there's such a thing called uh, a radio freedom that w- that's still a radio station that is broadcasting out of Europe. Congress of the United States is subsidizing it. And I would listen to it on short uh, radio <laughs> in the military. And you could see that the, the Baltic republics already were having serious demonstrations against Soviet rule, and there was already bloodshed there. And then there was uh, problems already going in Armenia and Azerbaijan in 1988. And then we were stationed in the military. I was stationed on the border with Romania, like 50 miles outside of Romanian border. And uh, We were on high alert when Ceausescu uh, regime collapsed. And we watched, I watched in disbelief that Gorbachev didn't go to his, to help him. And the whole regime collapsed in a matter of weeks and Ceausescu got executed publicly. It was unbelievable. He's dictator of, of Romania for, well, I don't remember, 20, 30 years he was a dictator of, of the country. So, and I realized that Gorbachev does a new type of people. They're not going to shed blood for anybody. And I think the country is going to collapse fairly quickly because there were a lot of republics that were annexed during the Soviet time, and they're not going to stay within the borders of the Soviet Union. Which... And I, I promise we'll get into real estate, but this I'm a student of history, and, and I find this fascinating. There's this old, I'm sure you've heard this quote, what would happen if, if communists took over the Sahara, uh-huh. that in 50 years, there'd be a shortage of sand. True story. How much of this devolution of the Soviet Union had to do with internal political strife versus the construction of the economy or the misconstruction of the economy, in your opinion? You know, in my opinion, the world, unfortunately, we all born unequal, unfortunately. There's no equality in and I think one guy that I know that he said once that I'm very fortunate that I was born a white male to a very fortunate parents, right? So I think you said that on one of the shows. So I remember that. And you're absolutely right. There's no equality in this. And so unfortunately, the communist idea that's based on this perceived equality, it's not ever going to happen. So to answer your question, 
the system was built on the wrong premise, you know, that there are few individuals, unfortunately, it doesn't matter the color of their skin. Some of us have more handicap than others, but there are a few individuals and there's an 80-20 principle, you know, about, I'm sure, there's a 20% of the people who are going to be generating 80% of the output in the society, or whatever it is, you know, financial output or productivity or whatever it is. So you could not just marginalize everybody, make everybody equal and expect that everybody's going to perform equally. It's just not going to happen. So it created a problem of supply and demand fairly quickly in Soviet Union. It doesn't matter what they tried to do. It never really caught up. And that's the basic problem with that, that there's going to be 80% of the people who are, are satisfied with the status quo and the mediocrity of everything. And there's 20% of people who are not. And this is where you're going to have a problem. The Pareto principle. Yeah. Interesting. So we'll segue into real estate here. When the wheels started coming off in 91, and there was this really ham-fisted transition into quasi you know, free market capitalism democracy, which arguable on a lot of levels, but away from communism for sure. And the privatization of, of the economy, massive inflation and a huge flight of capital out of Russia. Talk about what that was like living through that period. Yeah, it was very unexpected. You know, I, I went into the military and I kind of left one country and then I entered a completely different country when I came back from the military. I came back and the store shelves were almost empty before. There was hardly anything before. But Moscow was supplied fairly well compared to the rest of the provincial cities. And then, you know, once the wheels come off, what happened is since it was a planned economy, and when you have a planned economy, that means every single plant or factory or collective farm had their distribution and quotas. And once everybody decided that they're on their own, they start hoarding the product. And from that point on, people start bartering. And so money became irrelevant. So the money that was in the system, they were chasing the same amount of money that was in the system, chasing very few services and goods, kind of like it's what's happening right now. We've got a lot of money and very little of goods and services due to supply chain and labor shortages and a lot of other problems. So it's kind of just like that And in the Soviet Union. I'll give you a story. It got so bad that the ruble, Russian currency, depreciated so fast that on one day, a guy who was running a pyramid scheme in the country, he decided that he'll pay for everybody's subway because subway a ride in Moscow was five kopecks, like basically equivalent of like I don't know, 50 cents back then to American dollars. And then the currency depreciated so much that 12 million people that took subway a dead day in Moscow could do it for free because he paid for the whole day for the whole city in rubles because the currency was worthless. So like I was surprised because you go into the subway and you, you expect to pay and there's no no reason to pay. And you ask the, the gatekeeper and then he goes, it's free, courtesy of MMM. And it was a pyramid scheme guy who was running it as a publicity stunt. That's to the point that that's what happened to the currency. You know, it was a six ruble to a dollar in 1990. And by the mid 1991, end of 1991, it was already 30 rubles to a dollar 
And then by 1992, it was 150 rubles to a dollar. So that's the inflation that basically ate up all the people's savings and that created a complete chaos in the country. Right. I mean, it in effect destroyed massive amounts of, of saved earnings and wealth for many Russian citizens, right? Correct. Correct. And those who realize really quickly that the only way you can protect yourself in this situation is to have your funds, your money, your savings invested in hard assets and real assets. They might not produce money because you might be not be able to rent it or something, but you could hold on to it because it was at least holding out to the value in real money at any given time. So at the time, I learned that buying and investing in real estate is the only way you could save your funds and save your savings and, and actually make anything as buying yeah. real estate. Yeah, it, it was interesting. This morning, I was reading the Financial Times about what's happening in, in Turkey right now. Yeah, the currency dropped by 30%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Erdogan is you know, <laughs> playing his own playbook here and not going exactly the opposite to what macro economists would tell him to do. And they're they're experiencing massive inflation. He just announced that state employees will get a 50% salary increase, which is only going to exacerbate the problem. But the article talked about how high net worth individuals in Turkey, obviously they're trying to leave, but they're also trying to expatriate their capital into hard assets in Western Europe, in the US, cryptocurrency, anything that will be a store of value and hedge against inflation. But I guess the issue back in the 90s in Russia was there was nowhere to go. I mean, you didn't have the options that people have today. So what did people do? Were you able to, were private citizens at that time able to buy real estate? Yeah, you, yeah, you could. Yeah. And you could buy real estate. And those actually who did buy real estate and those, you know, that, the, those who bought hard assets like defunct factories and plants and industrial assets, and those are the oligarchs that you hear about. Those are the people who became just astronomically rich in really, really, really short time. There's maybe about 30 people who are billionaires in Russia and all thanks to the money that they invested in those assets at the time in rubles because we had the so-called privatization auctions and most of the assets got privatized pennies on the dollar just for dirt. And that's how those people became astronomically rich. Yeah, I don't know if you've read the book Red Notice. Incredible story. If people listening haven't heard about it, check it out, Red Notice. It's a wild story about an American hedge fund manager that participated in a lot of these post-Soviet collapse privatization of industry companies and made a lot of money, but there was a lot more to the story, obviously. He, yeah, he crossed the line with the government and he was the one who's prosecuted uh, right now by Russian government after the Magnitsky law was passed right. in the United States. It's yeah. a fascinating book. Everybody should read it if they're interested in, in modern history. Yeah, he was an activist investor in a country that, you know, not a long-term viable business for activist investors. How long did you stay in Russia? I left in 91, it was shortly after the country collapsed. So you weren't there in 98 during the ruble no. explosion, the devaluation? No, I wasn't, no. Okay. no. So let's transition into what happened when you came to the States. How hard was it to get out, first off? Well, first I moved to Belgium and I had visas and I had to get a visa every single time I had to come. So 
I did some export business for Russia because Russia at the time didn't have anything after everything collapsed. All the factories was closing and there was hardly anything. So I started exporting from Belgium. I started exporting cars from Antwerp. And famously and it, hard to get a visa at that point. In at Britain. the time was hard. Yeah. So I had to cross a lot of borders illegally. So <laughs> I was code cross borders to Poland and then from Poland to Germany and then from Germany to Belgium. So a lot of times it was an adventure to cross borders and not a lot of German guards, their border guards really liked us. So it was adventurous every single time. But yeah, so I started exporting stuff from Belgium, from Antwerp, and anything from cars to shoes, and then containers of shoes, and then shampoo, and then truckloads of shampoo. And so it started there. And then met a girl in the youth hostel, and she invited me to the United States. And we got married shortly uh, after I came. And so I've been in the United States since. And when did you get involved in the commercial real estate business? Ah, it's an interesting story. So I started in the United States when I came. I started in the car business and I was a salesman in a Toyota showroom first and then grew in the group and the automotive group to be a, a sales manager really quick and then general sales manager and then general manager. And then by 2008, you know, I was a general manager of an infinity store here in Bay Area. And I was going to auctions because I wanted to get into real estate because I start seeing that the prices were dropping 2008, 2009 for real estate, which is unusual for Bay Area. Bay Area hold on to its value. The real estate doesn't matter, upturn, downturn, it's, it holds its value. And I, I start seeing that like at East Bay, for example, start losing uh, a lot. So, And I start seeing it that the banks were, were probably going to lose a lot of money because the loans were like $500,000 and it was selling for a hundred. So I figured that if the banks are losing three quarters of their loan values, then there's going to be a huge explosion and the banks are just going to start collapsing. So, And that was in the summer of 2008. So I, I took all my money out of the stock market, all my savings and was sitting on the sidelines. And sure enough, as you know, it was a big squeeze and a big short and then market collapsed and then the prime subprime mortgage crisis and housing collapse. So that allowed me to start looking at the same properties that were selling for 100,000 only 2008 to buy them for 50,000 so about 5 cents to 10 cents on the dollar of their original loan values so and then I left a uh, car business to go full time into buying and rehabbing properties first in Vallejo there is a town in Vallejo in the Bay Area a great little town but it was mismanaged since the navy base left in the 80s so by the time I got involved there, they were going through bankruptcy. So there was blood on the streets and literally because there was not enough police. There was volunteer police riding with the real cops. They cut police, they cut firefighters. Nobody wanted to touch Vallejo real estate. And it's a Bay Area town that's right on the Bay. It's a 30 minutes ferry ride to downtown San Francisco. So I really quickly realized that, you know, started with flipping homes there, then realized that keeping uh, multifamily assets and renting them out would be great because you're basically buying assets from the banks for the price of the permits to build them or to convert them to uh, residential. So I'll buy duplexes, fourplexes, seven unit complexes, stuff like that, and start holding on to them. And by 2012, when uh, Web 2.0 happened, Facebook uh, went public and a lot of other companies, Airbnb and LinkedIn and a lot of other companies in Bay Area uh, start exploding with capital and, and a lot of people start moving in start pushing rents everywhere so and pushing rents up 
And that the rising tide lifts all the boats. So it lifted my boat and boat fairly quick because the rents start rising there as well. So that's how I get in there. But interesting thinking, going back to inflation, my original thought was that when Congress passed the first bailout of 700 and I believe $20 billion in 2008, right? First package. And I'm thinking that $720 billion, this is crazy. It's just going to flood the market with money. And so there's going to be a massive inflation, maybe not right away, but then within a year or two. And that didn't happen. We didn't have that. So, but I was buying in Vallejo for the reasons that thinking that this is the way to save money because in 2008, 2009, when you're looking at the market, you know, Dow Jones was at 5,300, right? I believe, or 50, yeah, 5,600, somewhere, somewhere in that range. And in March of 2009, so I'm like, where is the safest way to put money? Is the rental real estate that can actually make money? And thinking that inflation is going to gobble up, inflation did not happen back then. So turn out that uh, there are a couple of factors played out. I think that the fact that the $720 billion was not that much money compared to what's happening right now, right? The amount of money that's being poured into economy. And the second factor that we were seeing, that I was seeing here, that technology really increases productivity and it happens across the board. So like me and you are talking right now on the Zoom from my home office, and you don't need an office anymore. You don't need a printer. You don't need a scanner. It's all on one tool. So you don't need any of this. And there's a huge savings. Everything is, becomes automated and everything is out, getting outsourced. And technology actually increases productivity and it decreases inflation. So that's what we've been seeing for many, many years. So but, here's my uh, question to you. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I think technology is inherently disinflationary and so powerful that it will offset inflationary pressures eventually. And you even referenced it, right? Web 2.0, the bailout, it kind of evened everything out. Plus, it wasn't that much money compared to GDP, maybe on a relative basis. So where do you think we're headed in terms of we're recording this in Q4 of 2021. The Fed just announced three rate hikes in 2022. Bank of England is the first central bank to increase rates since COVID. Huge concern about inflation. But Web 3.0, crypto, huge advancements in big tech and technology in general. I mean, you're one of the few people that has actually been through an inflationary period. Most investors like myself have not. I'm going to put you on the spot here. How do you think it all shakes out? I don't have a crystal ball, of course, and this is not an investment advice, but I can tell you one thing that from my experience, what we're seeing right now is transitory. And I'll tell you why. There was a massive amount of money that was just given away to people in the form of PPP loans. I mean, what, close to nine, eight and a half, nine million loans to small and little businesses and medium-sized businesses. It's an incredible amount of money that was given to them. Plus the money that was just mailed to the checks that was mailed to, to people, plus the state and federal unemployment funds. There's a lot of people have a lot of money. If you look at, at the savings rate right now, it's the highest it ever been. We have, I think worldwide, we have, we're sitting on about $3.7 trillion in savings and cash right now. But it's going down. I think in the last month or so, people start getting back to work slowly. And then they're working down their savings. I think the savings rate has got down by $300 billion worldwide. 
So I think what will happen is once people run out out of their savings that they got from COVID money, we'll see totally different picture there. Well, people will have to actually have to go to work because right now it's there's a labor shortage. Nobody really is interested in getting back to work. But then they will have to go to work because there will be no more money. And I don't think politically there will be any more money available. So that will mitigate that. And that now once people start going back to work, it will change that. So I think it's a transitory fact that we have an inflation the way we have it right now. I think by the end of next year, we should have uh, everything uh, going back in line. And if nothing else, actually uh, a little deflationary uh, period of time because, because of the technologies, as you mentioned, and crypto and other factors too. So that's my feeling. It's my gut feeling that that's what will happen. People just burn through their savings and then and that's it. And then supply and demand will kind of even out a little bit. So that's where it's going to, again, that is if nothing else happened. There's no any other issues we will have with on a variance of, of COVID because if that happens, there's going to be another bailout and more money printed. Yeah, I mean, something's going to happen <laughs> at this rate, given what's going on. Given your experience living in, in communist Russia in, in the Soviet regime, were you surprised by what happened in the U.S. economy when people were basically given universal basic income for a year? Well, you're talking about universal basic income here in the United yeah, States. So basically, I mean, to your point, all the PPP loans, the yeah, yeah, unemployment, yeah, yeah. people in New York City were making like $56,000 post-tax for not working. I was not surprised, Brian. I, I know the Soviet regime was different in terms of people were still had to work, but you know, if conceptually, you listen, it's probably the closest thing we've come to. Yeah. If you listen to all the rhetoric on democratic election trails from all the candidates, they were beating each other on social programs that they're going to throw in. And so they're all talking about how much they will subsidize this or subsidize that or subsidize this. And nobody was talking about where is it going to come from, where the money is going to come from. They all were talking about that. So it was on the horizon, you know, because the inequalities right now, unfortunately, such, and as you know, inequalities are the number one reasons for revolutions. I mean, the French Revolution happened because of inequalities and Russian Revolution happened because of inequalities. And, and if nothing is being done here, it's probably going to happen. So I, you, the writing is on the walls. Something needs to happen. You, you've got 56% of the population that lives on one way or another, even before COVID. 56% of the population lived on some sort of government assistance, whatever it's social security, disability funds, or Section 8 housing, or food stamps, whatever it is, 56% of the United States population was on subsidies. So it was already in the works. So when COVID hit, it was only you know expected by me that this is where it's going to go, that we're going to have some sort of basic universal basic income form that's going to happen. And I think we're heading there. There's no any, way, no any way around it because there are way too many people are left behind the web 2.0, left alone 3.0. It's just, you know, what I'm seeing is out there, I have properties in four states and five markets, and I'm seeing the type of tenants that I have as I'm trying to diversify between C-class, B, and A-class in different cities. And from what I'm seeing right now, 
a lot of people, they don't even know how to use computers. They can't even apply for assistance. Billions of dollars are out there for them, and they can't even apply for assistance. All it takes is just go on the computer and enter your application, and they don't even know that. So sometimes my manager have to go in and help them, and, and there's millions and millions of people like that in America. They can't get jobs in Web 2.0. They can't even get a job at, in McDonald's because you have to use a register you have to clock out. It's all electronic stuff, and they don't even know how to do that. So that's a big problem. America needs to get re-educated before we start talking about anything else. But a huge, huge plot of people are being left behind right now. Now, this is a really interesting conversation. Get, so the largest group of people population-wise in America who are considered poor, right? the definition of poverty, are white people. Mm-hmm. Considering what you just said... Do you think universal basic income or some kind of subsidized payment system will be put in place as opposed to some kind of educational regime in order to avoid some kind of class warfare or like legitimate civil unrest? Unfortunately, I think that's what will happen because it's easier to pass through Congress and through Senate and get it signed off. And I think people just want money. You know, they don't want to go learn anything and they want to work for the money. A lot of those people are over 40 years old and it's hard, really hard to change yourself when you are over 40. It's like we're already so entrenched and so set in our ways. It's really, really, really hard. You know, I had a a couple of managers and they're in their 50s and it was really hard for them to tell them how to use PDFs and how to use simple things. So it's really, really hard. So people are going to vote for money before they're going to vote for education because then it's a lot of work. And we're so set right now that handing money, it's just easy. We just set up the system to do it to people expecting it now. So unfortunately, you know, instead of investing in pre-K education, which is that's where you start, and, and then you have to see what happens 20 years after that because this is the people in the pre-K education who will learn how to use computers and how to use how to code and how to communicate and have work ethics in new web 3.0 world right we don't invest into that and even more people like that are falling behind so we'll have that huge group of people that the 20 percent are going to subsidize the 80 percent it's again 80 20 principle the 80 percent are going to be struggling and if we want to prevent any urban warfare Unfortunately, this is what's going to happen. Uh, not not educational money, but just handouts. And not to speak poorly about your country of origin, but Russia has a real issue with this, right? Not only do they have a bad demographic trend, I mean, they're not doing well from that standpoint. They're very much associated with old line industry, the energy sector, industrial manufacturing distribution. They don't really have a knowledge-based economy or a tech-based economy. And, you know, Putin is really facing a lot of pressure here because there is not a lot of upward mobility for many young entrepreneurs or young people that aspire to to move on from whatever you know socioeconomic population they were born into. That is Could correct. You, that yeah, is I mean, correct. do you still stay in touch with friends and family that are in Russia today? Yeah, yeah, I do stay in touch with them, and the country is heavily relied on natural resources and can't diversify itself out of it. So, unfortunately, they're not looking into it, and they're not investing into renewables. And if you look at what they do, you can realize that for Russia being one sixth 
of the earth mass of the world geographically. Global warming, climate change is the best thing that ever happens to them. Because now Nordic uh, lands are not being frozen anymore. Permafrost is clearing up. And so now they can build further north. The temperatures in the middle of the country are getting milder. So now they can farm better in the middle of the country. Since sanctions started, the agriculture was built in Russia from zero, from scratch. So they're really happy about that. So now they're not depending on imports of food. They're exporting food to Europe, which never happened before. So they're really happy about that. So they're drilling for oil in an Arctic. And there's a big battle going on right now for the drilling in Arctic. And they're putting a lot of effort in coal right now. The rest of the world is shutting down coal plants. Russia is developing coal mines in Siberia and Far East and the Northern territories as fast as they can. They're building railroads to the mines. It's the booming business coal right now. And you think like, why would they do that if the world is trying to, you know, trying to reduce carbon print? Well, the answer is this. You've got seven and a half billion people on the planet and probably half of them living in developing countries. And this half of this population of the world want to live like us in the first world countries. They want, you know, two car garage and they want a three bedroom home. They want to have two cars or three cars per family. They want highways. You know, they want planes. They want bridges. You know, they want fast rail trains. They want all of that. All of that requires steel, right? It requires metals. How do you get metals? In the world, we, in, as humans, we didn't come up here with any other system how to create metal, but to buy, by burning fossil fuels. And that's the only way we can come up. So that's the only way we could do that. And so that's why we've got coal, and coal is still going to be for foreseeable future is the carbon that we're going to be burning to get that. So Russia is not interested, completely not interested in the climate accord. And so I'm very pessimistic when it comes to that. With the Paris Accords and the Glasgow Accords? Correct. Yeah, correct. I'm very pessimistic because there are countries that do it, and Russia is one of them, that they're not interested in, in any of that. For them, you know, the warmer it is, the better. And they've got a big challenge of they've created, China especially has created this, to your point, affluent middle class that expects a certain quality of life. And like you said, you once you give people a taste of it, you can't walk it back. You can't go backwards in quality of life. You, you see what happens to affluent people or rich people when you take their toys away. They react poorly. And if these people want to maintain control, they've got to keep supporting that affluence, that middle class appetite to consume goods. And so I, I agree with you. There's large... We can't talk out of both sides of our mouth. We can't say we want, we absolutely want democracy and everybody's prosperity everywhere. My cat is going to <laughs> We want prosperity for the rest of the world. We can't say that and then deny those 3 billion people the same goods and services that we have. They're going to build bridges and skyscrapers and, and homes and they, they need cement and they need you know, and they need metals for their planes, for their cars, for everything that they're going to build. They want all of that. So there's no way around it. So we're going to have that. So let's do a hard pivot here because I want to make sure we talk about Ready, Lend, Go. We'll have to have you on again to talk about geopolitical and macroeconomics because your fascinating opinion and considering your background, really cool perspective on things. But talk about Ready, Lend, Go, what it is, how it works, what the benefits are. Yeah, so Ready, Lend, Go is the platform that I, I, I created right now. 
It's a loan aggregator. It's like a lending tree. You've probably heard of them. The banks compete, you win. Remember that slogan? So it's kind of like that, but only for commercial real estate. So what it does is you enter your information. If you want to if you want to buy or refinance your property, that you have commercial property, multifamily, storage, restaurant, anything. Basically, input information of basic information on the property and a couple of lines about yourself. And then my system finds the best loan for you. The reason why I come up with that is because I did seven deals this year in multifamily, seven purchases. And the hardest part of it, believe it or not, was to find right financing. Because a lot of banks would say, well, property will like you as a borrower, but we want 50% down. So, or it's 65% LTV and it doesn't, then it doesn't make financial sense, right? So all seven deals that I did this year were at 80% LTV and half of them recourse, some of them not recourse, but because it was like at mid trees rates and they were 80% LTV that allowed me to buy more properties, right? And so it's really important to find a right lender. And I thought, you know what? I have so many already lenders in my database. Why don't I create a, a product that can help everybody? So you can just uh, go to readylendgo.com uh, and just input information and get the best quote, best deal for your property. Because they're all different. All lenders have different criteria. And those who own commercial real estate, they know or try to buy commercial real estate. They all know that most of the time the spend is on is finding the lender and sending all the paperwork and then getting denied or getting quotes. And then the deal doesn't is not getting done at the term sheet that you've got. So uh, Ready Lend Go is the source to go. It's much easier. Yeah, and it's less clunky than working with a broker who you know is going to push you towards their relationships and may not have all the information. And so clearly is the way the direction the industry is heading, both on the debt and the equity side, frankly, is you know taking down some of these barriers to entry, you know, democratizing this access to information. So you know, really seems like a cool tool and a good aggregator. If people want to learn more about the website or what you're doing, what's the best way for them to to connect with you or go to the site itself? Oh, they can go to readylendgo.com and it's very self-explanatory. It has a loan calculator. It has a submission page. It's very simple. So you just fill out five lines and you'll get a response within 24 hours with a quote. So it's very simple. If somebody wants to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn. This is the only social platform that I'm on and the social media platform I'm on. So LinkedIn, it's Arthur Drozd, and I could answer any questions or connect with anybody who's interested. Arthur, I want to thank you. You know, we connected through LinkedIn and we've been talking for a while now, and I'm glad we finally got this on tape. Your experience, your background, your perspective, given everything that's going on in the world is very helpful and useful. I'd love to have you come back on. We'll do a part two. And I can grill you some more about what's going on in, in, in Russia and in the US and how you see things evolving with this current cycle. So you know, I encourage people to connect with Arthur. Go check out the website. We'll include that in the show notes. And I want to thank you for the time and, and hope you have a great weekend. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.